Well, welcome back. We are in Romans chapter 8, regarded by many as the greatest chapter in the Bible. We started last week looking at this subject of being made children of God and heirs of Christ, and we want to go ahead and continue that look of those verses today. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 14 where Paul writes these words. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, to whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We'll stop right there. We said that this eighth chapter of Romans is a refreshing chapter in that it is a chapter about assurance. Paul brings us to the point of despair in the first seven chapters, describing the human condition, how mankind has turned away from God, and how there is absolutely no means, no human effort whatsoever that can bring us back into fellowship, into a right relationship with God. And therefore, God has to do for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. We need to be brought into a right relationship. We need to be made righteous. But it has to be a foreign, the term I've used is an alien righteousness that has to be applied to our lives because it is not an inherent righteousness. It is an imputed righteousness, is the way that theologians sometimes put it, as opposed to an inherited righteousness, something that comes down to us simply by virtue of the fact that we are part of the human race. And Paul wants us to know that because of this alien righteousness, because God has acted on our behalf in the person of Jesus Christ, we can be assured, we can be confident. Confident in a number of things. First of all, confident, he says, that there is, for those who are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. We are no longer under the law. We are no longer under judgment. We are no longer subject to death and guilt and shame. For those who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Not only that, he says, but we can be assured of the fact that we have actually been adopted into the family of God. And we talked at length about what that meant in the first century world and how that is analogous to what happens to us, that we have been adopted into the family of God. We are children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High. And that should give us a great sense of confidence. That's what Paul wants us to have. He wants us to have confidence so that we can be used of God. I pointed out, I think, last week that Martin Luther, until he came to this great truth by reading through Paul's epistle to the Romans, pretty much was worthless in terms of being used as a mighty force for the gospel. He lived in such fear. He was so anxious all of the time that he fretted and could not be used. But once he received this assurance that he was, in fact, in Christ, that he was now 
no longer under condemnation, then Luther went out and he did extraordinary things. And that's what Paul wants us to experience as well. Now we asked the question last week, how do I know that I am in fact a child of God? I want this assurance, naturally, I want to be used by God, but how can I be absolutely certain beyond the shadow of a doubt that I do indeed belong to God, that I have passed from death to life, that I'm no longer under condemnation? Well, we said there is a paternity test. There are a number of things that God does in our lives that are evidence of the fact that this transformation has taken place in us, that we have experienced this new birth. What are those things? Well, we said there were at least three in particular. First of all, God renews our minds. Paul's going to make that point later on in Romans chapter 12. He says, therefore, be transformed. That's, of course, what has to happen to us. We have to be transformed. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We often think of salvation as something that happens in the heart, and that is absolutely true, and that's going to be one of the tests of our sonship or our being a child of God. But actually, salvation does not begin in the heart. It begins in the mind. We talked about Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. We said that the prodigal son, once he had squandered all of his inheritance and he was there in the pigsty, he had reached such a low estate that he was actually longing for the pods that the pigs were feeding on, he came to his senses. All of a sudden he began to look at the world through a different lens, through a different set of eyes. And it's only then that you begin to see yourself as you really are, begin to see your miserable condition, that then you begin to recognize your need for a Savior. So that's the first thing that has to happen. There has to be a transformation of the way that we think. We have to receive a different worldview, a different way of looking at life. And not just life, but a different way of looking at the world in general. So that's the first thing, when you begin to look at the world differently. And that can be any number of things. It can mean, for example, a different way of looking at things in terms of their value. Paul on one occasion says, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, think on these things. Those are the things that we are to value as Christians. And unfortunately, those are the things that are not valued by our culture. So one of the ways that you know that your mind has been renewed is you begin to think on the things that are above rather than the things of earth. Now, as Paul's going to point out to us, that can be costly. It can be costly because you will be going countercultural, And yet that is one of the evidences that you are a son or daughter of God. So there is a change in the way we think, a renewal of our mind. Secondly, there is a stirring of the heart. That is to say, our affection toward fear, out of a sense of obligation, we now begin to serve God out of a sense of love, love for Him. You know, people were going to serve God out of one or two motivations. Some people will serve Him because they're afraid that if they don't, they're going to get it. There are some children, for example, that serve their parents for that reason. They're obedient to their parents, but not because they love their parents, but because they're afraid of what will happen to them if they don't. Now, sometimes, you as a parent, you may be thinking to yourself, I don't care. And there should be a, a proper respect, maybe even a holy fear of those in authority over us. But that is a poor motivation when all is said and done. 
God wants us to serve him out of a sense of love. And so that is the second thing that happens to us when we are true Christians. We not only have a renewal of our minds, we find that our hearts are stirred as well. That is the way Wesley described his own conversion. He said, my heart was strangely warmed. Do you have an affection toward God? Do you have a love for God? Or do you see God as that great judge who sits up there in the sky waiting for you to mess up so that he can punish you? If that is the case, then it may be that you do not have the kind of relationship with God that you should. Now here's the third thing that is the paternity test or aspect of the paternity test. Renews our minds, stirs our hearts. He directs our wills. That is to say, he guides us and directs us in the way that we should go, in the way that we should conduct our lives, in the way that we should treat other people. So if you want to know if you are a child of God, these are the things we need to examine in our own lives. Nobody can do that for you because many of us are very good actors. Uh, you know, it's interesting, the word that is translated as Hypocrite in the New Testament is the Greek word anupokritos, or pokritos. It means to wear a mask. It means that we are, we are actors in a play, and let's be honest, many of us are good actors. Some of us, it's an Academy Award-winning performance, if the truth be known, in the way that we live our lives. We don't want anybody to know what's really going on behind the scene. We want everybody to think that everything is going just great. So we need to take a look. Has our mind been renewed? Has our heart been stirred? Are we serving God out of a sense of love rather than out of a sense of fear? That, these are the signs, these are the evidences that we are children of God. Now there are lots of implications that flow from this. If we are in fact children of God, then what that means is that we have been adopted not only by God, but adopted by God into something, and that is into a family. You're part of a family. And as I pointed out last week, it's unfortunate, but you can't choose your family. Many of us wish we were in a different family. Well, you get adopted into the family of God. There is a sense in which we can choose this family, but when you're adopted into the family of God, what you cannot choose are your siblings. And that means that every Christian... Every follower of Jesus Christ is your brother or your sister, and that is something for you to take into consideration. All Christians are therefore your brethren. But Paul doesn't stop there. He not only says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we are now children of God, adopted into God's family, but he goes on to talk about some of the other benefits of being made children of God. He says, if we are children of God, then we are also, he says, heirs of God. Listen again, for you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's what we all were. We were all slaves to sin. The very things we want to do, we do not do. The very things we hate, these are the things we find ourselves doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? It's a terrible situation, and God in his mercy lifts us out of slavery and adopts us into his family. So we pass from being slaves to being children of God, 
And not only children of God, but because you are a child, you are also heirs of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Many children look forward to the day when they will inherit from their parents. And sometimes children are sorely disappointed. They're disappointed because they discover that their parents really didn't have as much as they thought they did. Or they're sorely disappointed because they discovered that their parents did not leave them everything. Anybody know who Cecil Rhodes was? Cecil Rhodes lived in the latter part of the 19th century. You, don't, you may think you don't know who he is, but I'm going to tell you, and you are going to know who he is in just a moment. But Cecil Rhodes was one of the wealthiest men of his time. Uh, he grew up in England. He was a somewhat sickly individual, and so he was sent off to a warmer clime. He ended up in South Africa, where he engaged in business. Uh, initially, it was mining. It was gold mining initially. Uh, but eventually, they hit upon something even more valuable than gold. And of course, if you know, South Africa, they hit diamonds. That's right. It was the largest cache of diamonds ever. It is still the largest source of diamonds in the world today. And what Cecil Rhodes did, he was a very good businessman, he cornered the market. And he became fantastically rich as a consequence. Rich in gold and diamonds, and he was the number one supplier of diamonds in the world. He died, however, rather young, 49 years old. And all of his siblings were waiting for the inheritance. And now you're probably beginning to understand who this man Cecil Rhodes was died in 1902, and he left behind an enormous fortune. But the vast bulk of it did not go to his siblings. The vast bulk of it went to endow a famous scholarship, the Rhodes Scholarships. So that's who Cecil Rhodes is. That's how he made his money. And the Rhodes Scholarships, of course, are still prestigious scholarships today. When his brother Arthur Rhodes heard that his brother had left all of this to endow a scholarship, he said, oh well, it looks that if I'm going to live as a gentleman, I'm going to have to win a scholarship. <laughs> he was disappointed because he was anticipating getting something and it did not happen. Now, I want you to understand that's not the way it is with God. God loves his children, and his promise is that everything that he has will one day be theirs. So you don't have to worry about that. Now, your, your own parents may disappoint you, but the promise is that God himself will never disappoint you. You can be assured not only of the fact that you are children of God, but if you are children, then you are also Heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. Now that's a very interesting phrase, fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, because we know that everything that Jesus has 
is the Father's. In fact, it's interesting to note that in John chapter 17, where Jesus prays the great high priestly prayer, I often refer to that as the real Lord's Prayer. What we call the Lord's Prayer is not the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is a prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples as a model for them to follow. They, they noticed that Jesus was always out there praying. That was part of his daily devotion. And so um, they knew that it was important for him. He was such a serene individual. So they went to him and they said, well, look, uh, we know there's a connection between the peace that you have in your life and your time in prayer. Teach us to pray like that. And Jesus said, well, when you pray, this is how you ought to pray. But Jesus never actually prayed that prayer personally, what we call the Lord's Prayer, because Jesus never said, forgive me my trespasses as I have forgiven those who trespass against me, because Jesus had never trespassed. He was like us in every respect, but without sin. But when you get to John chapter 17, you have a real prayer of Jesus, one of the few occasions where a prayer of Jesus is actually recorded. And what's interesting is that it is a prayer for his disciples. In John 17, one of the things that he asks for himself is that he may enjoy the glory that he had once enjoyed with the Father. That he might enjoy it again. Now, Paul's going to go on and talk about glory in the very next verses. But the point is that that was something that Christ had with the Father before the incarnation. It was something that he set aside for you and for me and for our salvation. But it is something that he is now about to take up again as he's praying that prayer. He wants what was by right his, again, his inheritance. Well, I want you to think about that for a minute. What Paul is saying here is that you and I are not only heirs of God, we are fellow heirs with Christ. Everything that the Father gives to him, he gives to us. Now, that's extraordinary. What does this inheritance look like? If that's the promise that you and I have as Christian people, what does it look like? Well, in one sense, it's indescribable. In, in one sense, it's impossible for us to understand the full extent of what we shall inherit. Paul himself has said, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, it has not entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. But we do get at least a glimmer of it. We, we, get, we catch a glimpse of it in the New Testament, and there are a number of things that are mentioned that I think are of significance. Turn to John chapter 14 for just a moment. Now, John chapter 14 is one of my favorite sections of the Gospel of John. It is what is referred to as the farewell discourse. Now, why is it called that? Because it contains the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples prior to his crucifixion. So these men are anxious. They're not certain what is about to happen to Jesus. In fact, these words were spoken on the night of the Last Supper. So this is the night before Jesus is going to be killed, murdered, before their very eyes. And he can sense that they're anxious. They can sense that he is somber. There's a, there's a heaviness in the room, and so Jesus speaks these words to them. I, I think it's just a wonderful, tender picture of Christ's compassion for us. Here he is, about to face 
the most excruciating form of death imaginable. And not only that, but separation from his father. And who is he concerned with? Others. He is concerned with his disciples. And here's what he says to them. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. One of the things that you and I are going to inherit as sons and daughters of God is a home. You know, if you come from a happy home, that is a haven. Now, if you come from an unhappy home, you'll probably spend the rest of your life searching for one. But none of us is content unless we have a place, a home, a place where we are valued, a place where we are accepted. That's what we're all searching for in many ways. And that is exactly what Jesus was promising to his disciples. He said, I'm going away, but I'm only going away to prepare a place for you. So we feel sometimes as though we're sojourners, we're pilgrims in this life. That's often the way the Bible depicts us, incidentally, as sojourners on a journey, but never really finding or landing any place. But the promise is that God does have a home for us. That should be a comfort to us. That's part of our inheritance. Some of you perhaps have inherited homes from your parents, houses. Maybe the old maiden aunt left you a, a big old house in which to live. Now, for some of you, that may be a burden rather than a blessing. I don't know, depending upon the house. But that's what God promises to us, a heavenly home. He also promises us a heavenly banquet. This is one of the images that we find throughout the Bible. Particularly in the New Testament, Jesus uses this image of a banquet. We took a look at that parable of the prodigal son. and We said that when he finally came home and his father welcomed him, put that mantle about his shoulder, put that ring upon his finger, the very next thing he did was what? He killed the fatted calf. Jesus tells parables about a king who was throwing a marriage supper for his son, a marriage banquet. And he invited all of the nobles of the land to come and attend this great banquet. And we're told that they each gave an excuse as to why they could not be there. And so what did the king do? Well, he was not about to be disgraced. Instead, he sent out an invitation to the highways and the byways, inviting in every sort and condition of men that the banquet hall might be filled. So we have this picture of a banquet. And indeed, heaven itself is described as a banquet. We refer to it as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, use a little bit of your imagination here. You may be thinking to yourself, oh, that means it's going to be feasting in heaven. And there are no calories in heaven, as we all know, so you can feast forever. Well, yes, that is, but what you need to understand is that what Jesus is really talking about, and this was particularly true in that first century context, a banquet was a celebration. 
And not only that, but if you've been in the gospel study on John that I've been leading on Sunday mornings in the rector's form, you know that this was an agrarian culture. Food was a precious commodity, not always available in the way that it is available to us today. When we're told that heaven is a banquet, it means it is a glorious celebration. It is an ongoing celebration. And it is a celebration in which the things that bring us joy are never exhausted. You never outstrip the supply. If it's ice cream for you, well, then it will be. But as we will see, it's not just ice cream. You know, somebody will ask the question, well, do dogs go to heaven? Now, I'm speaking as a theologian here, so you have to listen to me. I'm speaking with absolute authority on this matter. Of course dogs go to heaven. I mean, my goodness. Because heaven is not just this ethereal place that we go. Jesus said it is a real place. Now cats, I'm not so sure about cats. They get nine lives down here. That's their inheritance. But, but the point is that whatever we need to be fulfilled, to be joyful, will be supplied in endless abundance. That's our inheritance. I've pointed out to you before, Jesus doesn't simply say that I go to prepare a place. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. It's not just some generic hostel that we go to in the sky. It is a place prepared with us in mind and everything that we need will be there. Here's the third aspect of our inheritance according to the New Testament. It is the privilege of reigning with Christ. Obviously, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He reigns. He reigns over all. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And the New Testament speaks of us reigning with Christ. Perhaps as a young person, women especially, dream of becoming a princess one day. Meghan Markle's discovered that that's not all it's cracked up to be. But the promise is that one day you and I will be just that. We have already, in a sense, become that because we're children of God. I always refer to my daughter as princess. And that's because as a child of God, that's exactly what she is. She is a princess. And you are princes and you are princesses. And one day the promise is that you will reign with Christ. Keep your finger there in John or Romans or wherever you are. And flip over to 2 Timothy for just a minute. Now often when I take you to 2 Timothy, I take you to 2 Timothy chapter 3 with that description of the difficulties that we face in this world. But I want you to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to read through the first 12 verses. Paul is writing to his young protege who is serving as the leader of the church in Ephesus. Remember, these were Paul's last words. This was the last epistle extant that we have that Paul wrote. And he says this, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier. 
a good soldier of Christ Jesus. For no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we shall live with him. If we endure, we shall what? Reign with him. There it is. That's the promise that we have. There's that wonderful image in the Chronicles of Narnia in which Lewis depicts the children, the Pevensey children who make their way through that wardrobe into this magical land of Narnia and meet this Christ figure, this great lion, Aslan. Do you know what they become? They become the kings and queens of Narnia. They reign in this wonderful kingdom called Caerparavel. It's a picture of what's going to happen to you and to me. We are going to reign. Do you realize that the angels who are so impressive today, everybody that met angels in the New Testament, were always tempted to worship them? But do you realize that one day you are going to reign over the angels? That is the promise of the New Testament, that we will reign with Christ and rule over angels. So we'll get a heavenly home. It will be a continuous celebration in which everything that we need will be supplied to us. The supply will always outstrip the demand. We will rule with Christ. And not only will we rule with Christ, but we will be made like Christ. We will be made like Christ. I'm reminded of that phrase by John Newton. I've used it before. Newton says, as he looked back over the course of his life, he said, I am not the man I want to be. I'm not the man I hope to be. He said, but thanks be to God, I'm not the man I used to be. Can you say that in your own life? Can you say, I'm not the person I want to be? I'm not the man I hope to be or the woman I hope to be, but thanks be to God, God has brought me so far along, I'm not the person I used to be. Well, let me tell you something. You're only going to be the man or the woman you hope to be in glory. When you receive your inheritance, when you will be made like unto Christ. You're going to be made like Christ. That's a tremendous promise. This is our inheritance as sons and daughters of God. Now, I pointed out last week, and you've heard me point it out many times before, One of the implications of what Paul is saying to us here in this chapter from Romans, this eighth chapter, is that not everybody, simply by virtue of their inclusion in the human race, is a child of God. You only become a child of God by grace through faith, by adoption. So not everybody inherits. 
you know, you, you may leave something behind for your children, but you feel no obligation to leave it behind for somebody else's children. The inheritance that Paul talks about here, this wonderful, wonderful thing to look forward to, is, and that's why it is all preceded by that paternity test. We have to determine if we are, in fact, God's children. But if we are, we have absolute assurance that these are the things that will one day be ours. Now, before I make the final point, I want to emphasize something for you. And that is that this is a future inheritance. That's the way it works with an inheritance. You don't get it while your parents are alive. Somebody has to die in order for you to receive the inheritance. In this particular instance, you and I have to die before we begin to experience in full this inheritance. That's the way it works. So if anybody comes along and tells you, oh, well, God wants you to have all of this sort of stuff right now, health, wealth, prosperity, there is a version of Christianity out there that teaches this, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. I want you to understand that that is a false form of Christianity. As we're going to see, Jesus never promised that for his disciples. What the Apostle Paul says was that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. But it's not revealed right now. None of us, simply because we are children of God. As I said, none of us, simply by virtue of our inclusion in the human race, is a child of God. But none of us, simply because we are children of God, are immune to suffering, pain, disappointment, and loss. Look at how Paul puts it here in Romans. He says, we are heirs of Christ, provided that we, what? Suffer with Christ. We are heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It is an inheritance. It is a wonderful inheritance, but it is an inheritance that is in the future. Now, that's not to say that the only thing you can look forward to in life is misery. That's not true. Even now, God gives us a foretaste. As a matter of fact, God gives us a down payment on our inheritance. You know, when you go out and you buy a house, one of the things that you have to do in order to secure the house is you put down what is known as earnest money. That's a sign that you are going to buy the house. You're not just telling somebody that you're going to do it, and so they take it off the market, and lo and behold, you don't do anything with it, and then they miss out on other buyers. No, you have to put down earnest money, don't you? It is to secure, it is the promise of further or future payments. Well, God gives us a down payment on our inheritance. Do you know what that down payment is? It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our down payment. He is our earnest money. And the fruit that he produces in our life is but a foretaste of what it will be like to be made into the likeness of Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So there's this wonderful promise of an inheritance 
but it is a future inheritance. Don't look for it in this life, although the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is the down payment, the assurance, as he is even now making you into the likeness of Christ, that God will finish the work that he has begun. I suppose it's like somebody drawing up a will and showing it to their children. Here's the will, and here's what you're going to get when I die. Don't be checking my pulse, but this is what you'll get when I go. That is the assurance, but it is an assurance that only becomes a reality when they die. So this is a future inheritance, but it is a marvelous inheritance that belongs to you and to me. It is a sure and certain inheritance. Now, that's why the Bible speaks of it as a sure and certain hope. You know, sometimes when we think of that word hope, we think of hope as, well, it's what you long for, but you're not absolutely convinced you're going to get it. It's like saying, well, I hope my wife cooks dinner tonight, but I think I better go buy Chick-fil-A on the way home. It means that you, you really don't think that it's going to happen. It's sort of a, a fond hope is the way we sometimes describe it. But that's not what the Bible means by hope. Hope, as the Bible speaks of it, is simply something that we're assured of. It just hasn't yet come to pass. We know it's going to happen. It just hasn't yet come to pass. Now, it may be like your wedding, the night wedding. You're, you're, it's a hope that tomorrow she's going to meet you at the altar. And, and you have no reason to doubt that she will. There's no, there's no reason for you to doubt that she's going to get cold feet. But of course, anything could happen. God forbid she could be coming home from the reception and get hit by a bus and everything falls apart. When the Bible speaks of hope, however, a sure and certain hope, what it means is that this is something that has not yet come to pass, but because it is God who is responsible for seeing that it does, it is a sure and certain thing. We just haven't experienced it yet, but we have no doubt whatsoever that anything can possibly intervene that will disrupt it. That's why Paul goes on to say, what then shall we say to these things? Can anything separate us from the love of God? And then he goes through that whole catalog of things, and he says in the end, no, there's nothing. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So this is our inheritance. It is a sure and certain inheritance. God has already given us the earnest money, the down payment on it, if you will, and the person of God, the Holy Spirit, who comes to dwell within us. And it is a glorious inheritance. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. It has not entered into the mind of God the fullness of it. But here's the best part of the inheritance. Yes, we get a home. Yes, we get a celebration. Yes, we get to reign with Christ. Yes, we get to be made like Christ. But the greatest inheritance of all is the Lord himself. You know, with the exception of the conformity to Christ, we're all talking about things that we get. And that's generally because we live in this materialistic culture. That's generally the way we think of things. But when the Bible speaks of the greatest thing that we shall inherit, it, inherit, it is God himself that we shall inherit. Look again at that phrase, heirs. Verse 16. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs of God. Now, what exactly does that phrase mean, heirs of God? Well, we need to have a little lesson here, just briefly, on grammar, Greek grammar in particular. The question has to do with the genitive in this case. Now, what is the genitive? The genitive is that part of speech that generally denotes possession. All right? So we denote possession by normally an apostrophe, for example, when we write. Jeff's class. All right? But there are two types of genitives. There is what is known as the subjective genitive, and there is the objective genitive. So think about this phrase for just a minute. The phrase, the love of money, and the phrase, the value of money. Now that phrase, the love of money, is in the objective genitive. It means that money is the object, and it's our love of the money. But think about that phrase, the value of money. In that case, money is in the subjective genitive. It's the value of the money. Think about this phrase, love of God. Now that's a tricky one because that can be in either the subjective or the objective genitive. If it's in the subjective, the love of God, then we mean God's love for us. If it's our in the objective genitive, then it means our love for God. So, love of God, Jeff's love. Jeff. Well, what about the phrase heirs of God? Is that in the subjective or is that in the objective genitive? If it's in the subjective, then what it means is that this is what we will inherit from God. And that's all the things that we've just listed. However, if it's in the objective, what it means is that what? God is the inheritance. The inheritance of God. It's God that you inherit as opposed to God giving you something. It's God himself who is the inheritance. Now that's tricky, and I'll be honest with you, it's hard to tell in the text what Paul is referring to. But I think what Paul is talking about here is that our greatest inheritance is not the things that we're going to get from God, but our greatest inheritance is God himself. Now why do I say that? Because there are so many passages, particularly in the Old Testament, that speak of God in that way. Let's just take a look at some of them for a moment. Turn to the book of Psalms. Easy to get to the book of Psalms, I always say. Close your Bible and simply open it to the very center. And I almost guarantee you're going to hit Psalms or Proverbs. If you hit Proverbs, go to the left and you'll hit Psalms. It's the next book over. Psalm 73.
verses 25 and 26. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my what? My portion forever. God is my portion. He's the strength of my heart. He's my portion. He is the thing I long for. Now, you have the same thing in the book of Lamentations. That's a very brief passage. That's a very gloomy book. But in it, the author speaks of God being his inheritance, God being his portion. Now, there is a powerful picture of this in the Old Testament. You know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. So I want to take you back to the Old Testament. Many people are not as familiar with the Old Testament, but I want to go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Joshua. So if you will, turn back to Joshua. I'll give you a minute to get there, in case you have to use your table of contents. Now the book of Joshua describes when the people of God having wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, finally come into the land, into the promised land. They had been delivered from God out of their bondage in Egypt, but you'll recall for 40 years, in large measure because of their own sin, they wandered in the wilderness. But eventually, in fulfillment of his promises, God did bring them to the land that he had prepared for them. Now you'll recall that the people of God were divided into tribes at this point. How many tribes were there? Twelve. Well, very good. So twelve tribes, when they come into the land, even before it is conquered, they are given an apportionment. Each tribe is given an apportionment. This is the section of the land that you will have. This is the section that the tribe of Gad shall have and Manasseh and so forth. And then it would become the responsibility of those people to go and drive out the enemies and take possession of the land. But there is an apportionment that is given to each one of the tribes. And that is what is described there in Joshua chapter 13. Let's just read through some of these verses. Because we're going to discover that there was one tribe that did not get any physical property. And that is the tribe of Levi. I, I said you... Many people don't know the Old Testament, but you people obviously do, so my apologies. But let's just go ahead and read verses 8 through 14. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them, beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses the servant of the Lord God gave them. From Aor, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and the city which is in the middle of the valley, and all the table land of Medeba, as far as Dibon, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who was who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the boundary of the Ammonites, and Gilead, and the region of the Geshurites, and the Makatites, and all of Mount Hermon, that is the area north, and all Bashan to Selakah, all the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth, and in Edre, he alone was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. These Moses had struck and driven out, yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites and the Makathites, but Gesher and Maccoth dwell in the midst of the city of Israel to this day. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. Every one of the tribes 
The other 11 tribes got a section, and as I said, they had to drive out all these people with these unpronounceable names. But when it came to the tribe of Levi, it says, to the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave what? No inheritance. Why? Because he didn't like the tribe of Levi? No, it goes on to say, the offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. God, as one translation puts it, was to be their inheritance. Why? Because they were the priests. This was the tribe of the priests. They were scattered among all the tribes, all the cities of the nation, and their apportionment was going to be God himself. It's as though everybody else gets something physical, but you get the best thing of all. The privilege of standing in the presence of Almighty God and serving at his altar. And that was considered to be the greatest honor imaginable. You know, that's what our hearts really long for, whether we believe it or not. St. Augustine got it right when he said, Oh Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. If you are a child of God, I want you to understand something today. You are an heir. Everything that belongs to Christ will be yours. You will be made like him. You know, there are certain things that we value in this culture so highly. One of them is beauty. There are gold and silver coins in this culture. And if you've got the gold and silver coins, you can go anywhere. What are the gold and silver coins? Intelligence and good looks. If you're an intelligent person and hardworking, you can go pretty far in this culture, even if you're ugly. But even if you're beautiful and you don't have brains, you can still go far in our culture. Probably further than those who have intellect. But those are the silver and golden coins, and many of us long to be beautiful. I mean, when I was growing up and I watched the news, there were basically three news outlets in those days, and even as somebody who's only in their 50s, I can remember them very clearly. You had ABC, NBC, CBS, and the people that I remember are Walter Cronkite, John Chancellor, and David Brinkley. These were these, how many of you remember those fellows? Okay, you remember them. Well, I mean, I guess they weren't ugly, but they weren't all that attractive. I mean, I mean, look at the news outlets today. Those guys would never make it. You've got to be good-looking to be on the news today. You've got to be good-looking for anything today. We value beauty. I want you to understand that part of our inheritance is that one day we're going to be made beautiful. So beautiful that if somebody were to see us in our glorified state, they would be tempted to bow down and worship us. Because true beauty is Christ-likeness. And that's what we're going to become. We're going to become like Christ in all of his beauty. Now, what are the practical implications of this? Well, somebody might say, well, that's all pie in the sky. It's a future inheritance, and that's all wonderful, but that's sometime in the future. What about right now? 
Well, first of all, we know that it is a sure and certain inheritance. It's a sure and certain inheritance because God has already given us the Holy Spirit. So we know it's coming. And if you know something is coming, that means you can live with a certain degree of confidence right now. First thing it means is that you can let go of earthly things. You know, people will tell you, you only go around once, so grab all the gusto you can get. Our culture teaches us that the one who dies with the most toys wins. But if you know that this life is not all there is, then you can hold the things of this world loosely. If you know that something better than what you have here or what is offered to you here is being offered to you in the future and you know that it is a certain thing, that means you can let go of the things of this world that bind the hearts and minds of other people. Here's the second practical implication. And this is what Paul is going to dig into next. You can actually rejoice in the sufferings of this present time. Now that doesn't mean when we say rejoice, you can be happy about it. It just means that you know that the sufferings, the difficulties, the disappointments you're going to experience in this life are temporary. You know, human beings can endure almost anything provided that they know that it's what? Well, <laughs> Not just that, because if you know it's worth it, but, but if it's temporary, if you know it's temporary, if you know that sooner or later it's going to come to an end. And that is the promise that we have of our inheritance in Christ. That's why Paul says these slight and momentary afflictions now, when you listen to Paul say slight and momentary, that's pretty extraordinary because in 1 Corinthians, he describes all of the things that he had to endure. And they were terrible things. Paul endured more than any of us have ever endured in life. And yet he found the ability to rejoice. And part of the reason he found the ability to rejoice was because he knew that those sufferings were momentary. And because they were momentary, no matter how severe, he could still regard them as slight. So if you are a child of God today, my friends, rejoice. There is a glorious inheritance that is stored up for you. The reason why Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, it's not entered into the imagination of man what God has prepared for him. It's because you and I with our finite minds cannot even begin to imagine what it will be like. Imagine the most wonderful thing you can imagine, and it will be better than that. And yet Paul, always the realist, says we shall reign with him Provided that we what? Suffer with him. And that's what we're going to take a look at next week. You think to yourself, well, why in the world does Paul do that? Why does he talk about all this wonderful stuff, this magnificent inheritance, and then turn around and bring in suffering? Well, I think there's some very good reasons as to why Paul does it. And not only that he does it, but he does it right here. 
sandwiched between, as it were, the inheritance that is ours and the glory that is to be revealed. Between those two, the promise of the inheritance and the manifestation of the glory, there is suffering. Why does Paul do that? At the very least, he does it because, let's be honest, Paul's a realist. But even in that, Paul says there's reason for hope. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that if we are children of God, sons and daughters of God, and we can only know that by examining our own lives, seeing if our minds have been renewed, seeing if our hearts have been warmed, seeing if our wills have been redirected. But if that is true, if we see ourselves growing in grace, if we see our affection toward the Lord increasing, if we see within us a desire, then the promise is that we are children of God. And if we are children of God, we are heirs, fellow heirs, co-heirs with Christ. All that is his will one day be ours. It is a future inheritance to be sure, but it is a sure and certain hope because you've already given us the gift of your Holy Spirit, the down payment, the earnest money on the glory that is to come. So grant us the grace to let go of the things of this life in anticipation of the riches that are to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.